All right, this, uh, I want to start this morning in, in James, where we left off last week, James chapter 4. I want to start off verse 7 uh, real quick. We touched on it lightly a little bit last week. Um, you know, when we look at the book of James, and we'll be going through a little bit of, of uh, kind of when we get into the last chapter, we're going to look at the fact that we've looked at the joy and trials, uh, which is so, uh, it is so important to learn as we advance in the Christian life. What are trials? Why do they come in? Why, you know, what is the value of trials? We looked at the fact that faith versus works, which is a huge understanding. Once we understand that right, the New Testament falls in place. Uh, we looked at teachers, uh, primarily use of the tongue, which involves the teaching of the Word of God, uh, what the tongue involves, where it came from, where the atmosphere of it is. It comes from a deranged, rotten, sick heart. The tongue is no better than the heart. Jesus even said so much as out of the heart come adulteries and thefts and murders and covetousness and strife. It's horrible. We realize what the tongue, the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue. Um, you can't go very far in the Proverbs without realizing uh, that's an issue we need to contend with. And then we also looked at, at the beginning of this chapter, wars and fights. Where do they come from? Why do they, why do they happen? Well, they also come in from lusts and envy, again, from a heart that's saturated with sins, deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. But this morning, I, I wanted to, again in James 4, starting at verse 7, and just go over a little bit, we'll be looking at the gravity of life, but we'll be looking at it from a godly, uh, biblical standpoint. And we all, you know, you, it doesn't take very long to talk to somebody that's, that's of a, any kind of age, an older person, and they'll tell you life's quick. You know, I mean, my dad uh, was amazed how quick life was when he was passing away. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Uh, you know, I think I was talking to uh, Cam the other day. I think it was Cam yesterday. Somebody was talking about, again, how quick life is. It's very quick. So it doesn't take a biblical perspective to see how quick life is. But when you look at how quick life is from a biblical perspective, it starts really... Uh, you know right away where your heart is uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. So we have a lot to talk about today. I'm really kind of excited about it. But therefore, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. <clears throat> well, quite frankly, you cannot do the resisting until you do the submitting. You know, so so many times this world, as backwards as it is, has this backwards that, well, if we just do everything we can and we resist it, there will be victorious. You will not be victorious. Unless you have submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you are going to fall through temptation, through trials, through lies, through lust, envy, you name it. <coughs> this world has a tide that in, unless we have the solid security of the rock, we will go with that tide. You know, years ago, uh, William Booth had a dream. And through this dream, he started uh, largely his work. And in this dream, there was a huge rock. And those that were on the rock, some of them realized they were with safety, but he also saw some on the rock that were careless and and enjoying that safety, not giving a word about it. But he saw in the vast oceans outside of this little rock, humanity drowning. And, and all of humanity was either on the rock or they were in the ocean. They were drowning. And, and it, it greatly impressed him. Um, the submitting to God is what we're after. Paul says it this way, that God gives certain men among us in Ephesians chapter 4 for the equipping of the saints, so the maturing of, of, of the Christians so he won't be, you know, tossed around. 
with everyone of doctrine, that he would be, become mature, that he would, would be able to, to, well, do what sheep do what they do, beget sheep. So many people think that the pastor or the, or, or, or the minister begets the sheep. No, the, the minister makes sure that the sheep are healthy and provide that, that growth, that stability, if they're worth their grain of salt, if they're called of God. Uh, and, and it's the sheep that beget other sheep. It's the healthy people that go out and they, uh, they go with what they have. And one part I believe that is so lacking today is the submitting to God, the committing ourselves to Him. Jesus is used as an example by the Apostle Peter. When he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was being whipped, when he was being on a false trial illegally and so forth, he kept entrusting himself to his Father. He committed himself. Even though the world was going apart, so it seemed around him, he kept entrusting himself Who was the victor? Christ died, but who rose again? And then you even get the devil saying, okay, well, you you know what? You got me there, okay? Jesus, I tried to get him down from the cross. I couldn't do that. He died, and I proclaimed a victory. He's gone. He signs forever. Okay, he rose from the dead, but he rose spiritually. He didn't raise in his body. He rose spiritually. Small sect of people believe that, but think about where that leads, okay? Leads to the concept of Christ consciousness and all these things. No, Christ rose bodily and physically, and then the body he was crucified in. Submit to God. Submit to his word. Submit to him. And then resisting the devil will be a concept that is ever-growing in our life. There are devils out there, if you will. Um, let me read you something, and, and I, I just love the Word of God. Wow. Paul writing Timothy said, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith. Why? Because they're giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. This is what happens, folks, when we don't submit to God. This is what happens when we don't commit to God. Our mind as well as our body, our thought life, our devotional life, our direction. Paul will say in 2 Timothy, he says, You've known my manner of life, my purpose in life. Absolutely dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we're not... That's when we will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. John says, test the spirits, try the spirits to see whether they are from God. You know, we must be committed, submit ourselves to God, not only in the situations we are, but make the decision now to commit your life to God, to submit everything to Him. Because in doing that, you will be submitting your life into the faithful, wonderful, loving hands of a faithful creator. You remember when Jesus, uh, it was in, I believe, um, Matthew chapter 4 and elsewhere, when he was being tempted of the devil. He not only resisted him, but he did it with the word of God. Are you committed to Christ in the word? That's what I want. That's that's what we all need to ask ourselves. Well, you know, that's a funny question. No, it's not. Is our Bible as much as our, necessary in our life as it is going to the refrigerator or making food? It better be. It should be. You have one, you should have the other one. This body's going to die, and yet we're incessantly involved in feeding it. Our spirit and soul is going to live forever. We should be more involved in feeding it. Submit to God. And then resisting the devil. And the Bible says that through the power of the Spirit and resisting the devil, he's going to what? Flee from us. Oh, he'll find an opportune time. Just like he said to Jesus. You know, he fled. But the scripture says, I think it's a Mark's account. I'm not sure. Don't quote me there. But he, he left 
until an opportune time. So the devil will flee from you, but he will find an opportune time. This is not a once in a while thing. This is a continual process. As we continually forge our life and work, we get up every day, we go to work. I know some of you get up extremely early and go to work. You're dedicated to work. That's great. That's called dedication. We submit ourselves to our employment. We submit ourselves, uh, you know, in a daily routine, defending for our families. Much more do we need to submit even that to God. Everything we have to Him. Every time we wake up in the morning, that's what I love about Greg's prayer when he said, Thank you for waking us up this morning. That is a fact. God wakes you up every morning to seek Him, to give your life to Him, to submit to Him. So when the devil comes as your enemy, uh, we've—I cannot wait to get into First Peter, but you know he—he he gives us an insight to this. He says that we're to cast all of our care upon Him. First of all, in this succession of series, before He tells us who this adversary is and what He's like, He says two things. Number one, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Are we doing that? Have we done that? Do we do that on a daily, moment-by-moment basis? But then He has another thing. He said, casting all your care upon Him. So we humble ourselves before God. How do you submit before God? Well, Peter tells you. You submit by humbling yourself before God. You submit by putting all of your care, all of your worry, all of your anxiety, all of your day's tasks at His hands. That produces a sober-mindedness. That produces a vigilant attitude. Then your adversary, like the devil, or the adversary of the devil, walks about, what does he do? How is he? What is he like? How does he attack us? Like a roaring lion. He is hungry for destruction. That's what he does. That's what, what Abaddon means, apoyon, under destruction. He is avidly appointed to your destruction. To seek whom might devour. But, but he says, resist him, just like Paul said, or excuse me, James is saying here, resist him steadfast in the faith, and we, we all know. God is going to allow you to go through it so that he can strengthen, establish, and confirm you. Resist the devil. We're a defeated foe unless we submit ourselves to God. Again, last week we said, and I will will just say this and then we'll go on. You know, there's a, there's a spiritual precedent. I'm always saying this to people, you know, some people have asked me, what exactly do you mean? When I say, well, you can always take the Old Testament and glean spiritual honey from it. Okay, here's an example. When David went to go see his brothers and they were fighting the battle with the Philistines, his brothers ridiculed him and said, oh, you, you, know, you left the sheep behind. There's always an accusation when you're dealing with the adversary. So his brothers are saying, hey, what about the sheep? You left the sheep behind? And, you, you know, remember David was a sheep herder. He was tending sheep, his father's sheep. And he says, you just want to come and see how the battle's going. And, well, David was indignant because this, this Philistine, Goliath, was defying the armies of the living God. So Saul, King Saul, put on his, his armor on and says, okay, if I can't persuade you not to go out and fight this guy, you're a little lad, but you know what, go ahead. But here, you know what, I'm going to put my coat of mail on you. At least he can be protected by this guy's weaver's bee. You know what I'm saying? So he puts on the coat of armor, and David says, I can't do this. But he goes out fully clad in the armor of God. He trusted in his God. He believed in his God. He relied on his God. And look what happened. That's what we need to do. We need to submit everything to God. And then resist the attacks of the devil, and he will flee from us. Oh, wow. <laughs> you remember what you did last week? Whoo, man. You know, you call yourself Christian? Well, we all know what Jesus says about that. He who comes to me will live forever. He is the one that took upon your sin. He is the one that's in the presence of God for you. He is the one that's interceding for you. He is the one that stands in the presence of God for you. He is the one that promises to come back. He's the one that's giving you eternal life. Submit to God. You are His property. You've been bought with a price. Stop what you're doing and submit yourself to your Creator. 
in everything. And then when the devil comes in like a flood, what does the Bible say? He's going to raise up a standard. That's Christ. When, the, when, he come, when your enemy comes in like a flood, and he will, that's what Satan does. The standard is Christ. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But yet, look at the, the practical part of this. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That, that scripture alone should silence all who say, well, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm protected by grace, and, and God wants us to draw near to him. To understand this verse better, listen to what the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you have full assurance? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God says in Jeremiah, through Jeremiah 29, he says, listen to this. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search with me with what? Your Sundays? When you have time for me? When, it, when it's convenient? When you've exhausted all avenues of divine contentment and happiness? No, it says when you seek with me with all your heart. This is a running thing all through the scripture. All of it. Wow. You know, it, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Does that mean God has left me? No. That means that God, a lot of times, stands silent in your life. Until we realize that He is our life. He is our life. So if you're trying to live a Christian life and fit in something else, you are going to be a frustrated Christian, my friend. And that is what the Bible says to be true. Listen again afresh to these words. I'm going to read this from the extended version. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I live now, I live in faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. You don't exist anymore. Your position and your determination and your outcome of life is not yours anymore. You've died to that. Now your whole reason for existing is wrapped up in the risen Christ. It's, it's the life that, that God has given you, true life. Life is isn't meant to be. We, are, we were created for God. Not for our own self-seeking. Man thinks he can find satisfaction somewhere apart from God. Or the religious person thinks, well, I have a religious part of me, and I can satisfy that, but the other part of me I'm going to satisfy too. They don't understand true life. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands. And that doesn't mean be like Pilate and say, I've washed my hands from this innocent man. Cleanse your hands means that you are going to allow the Word of God to do its work in your life. And if there is something in your life that is not aligned with the life of God, you're going to allow it to be gone. To allow God to take away. Paul says we mortify or we deal with the deeds of flesh. We put to death the deeds of flesh by the Spirit. We cleanse our hearts. We come to Him. And we aren't double-minded. Well, you know, geez. If is a, is a horrible word in a Christian's life. I'll do this if. I'll follow God if. I'll go to church if. I'll read my Bible if. I'll love my wife if. Try that one. I'll love my wife if, you know. God never said that. 
God never said I'm going to love you if. Double-minded. A lot of us are still double-minded about our relationship with God. Lament, mourn, and weep, verse 9. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now what does that mean? You know, there's some people that laugh their way through life. Life is not a laughing matter. They're going to laugh their way to life, but yet, you know, they laugh when things go good, but they weep when things go bad. Yes, the Bible does say laughter is good medicine. But the Bible also says that a hearty fool laughs his way through life. Well, who is the fool that laughs their way through life and thinks that life is one big game and one big joke and stands before his creator absolutely terrified and weeping, being thrown into outer darkness? Who's the fool then? The Bible says that we weep now, but we will we sow in tears, we'll reap with joy. You know, they're trying to they're trying to make they got a book out, and they also got a portrait of a it's called The Laughing Christ. You heard of it? You know that I'm pretty well read as far as books. I, I know that some of you are too. You know, really? The Laughing Christ. I can tell you a lot of places in the Bible says the weeping Christ. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus hung on a cross and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because of sin. And and, and he mourned that people, he groaned in his spirit. How long am I to put up with you? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravenous wolves. Beware that in the last days that no one deceives you. There's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, people are going to be killing each other. Does that look to you like we should laugh through life? Like we should take life as just, oh well, life's one big party. There will be eternity of joy. I believe there's going to be absolute laughter and joy in heaven. Peter says joy inexpressible. We are here to let a dying world know that God loves them and wants to save them from eternal doom. A lot of us are like we're sitting on top in that helicopter seeing somebody in the Bering Sea perish and have the have the lifeline right there, and we don't do anything about it because we're so lethargic, we don't care. We're so involved in our lives. We're so involved in our entertainment. We're so involved in our ease. We don't care if we see the, the one drowning down there. And we're laughing. We're going through this life and, and, and making a light uh, situation of, of this world that is, is going headlong into hell. Lament, mourn, weep. You'll have to return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves on the side of the Lord and He will lift you up. He's going to lift you up. I don't want to depend on me to lift me up. I can't lift me up. Oh, I try. How many of us try to, you know, just get a good attitude? Just get a, just have a stiff upper lip, you know? Try to do the best. And, and, and you know, that's, that's commendable for people that want to look at, at life the right way. The only thing to look at life as a right way is through the Scriptures. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. Hey, I fast twice a week. You know, I give tithes of all that I possess. 
And the tax collector standing over here, he would not so much even raise his eyes towards heaven, but he beat on his breast saying, God, forgive me and be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And we're laughing in life. This life is not a joke. Jesus came as not a joke. He didn't come to teach us how to be moral like this righteous Pharisee. He came to bleed for you and I so that we might live. And that's what repentance is all about. True repentance means humbling yourself and turning from your hopeless, vain, futile ways and turning to the Savior and receiving life, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, because everybody is going to die. There's one surety in this life, and that's death. Taxes aren't even sure compared to death. Everybody will die. And then what? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and God is going to lift you up. Again, we come back into practical. That's what I love about James. Such understanding of, of, of the depths of God, and yet, it, it, again, it unfolds in practicality of life. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Wow. Do you know what the Bible says? That if you want to judge, that same measure of judgment is going to be heaped upon you. Don't judge your brother. Be a doer of the law. Jesus says, there's a new law that I give to you to love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. Love is the fulfilling of the law. But you don't love one another, you judge one another. He says, there is, verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Jesus was talking about the law in our own eye. You know, we want to see, we want to remove that little speck in our brother's eye, right? We don't realize the law in our own eye. This is what Paul says in Romans 14. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will stand before him. I don't know about you, but what motivates me is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, now, listen to these things as we get in these next couple verses. Remember, the Lord of glory standing before him. Oh, you're bought and paid by the blood of Christ. He's been interceding for you your whole life. The devil cannot take possession of you because you are his. Well, he can, the devil can harass you, but we can resist him and he will flee from us. Christ is everything. We will be standing before him in glory and he is going to look at you. And you're going to give an account of, of the life. Okay? The life that we have now, the fleeting life. What are we going to do with it? Are we coming to church Every Sunday and Wednesday or whatever, just accumulating uh, knowledge? Or are we growing and allowing the Lord to, to, uh, to blossom in us, to allow the seed of his word to take root? Look at verse 13. Again, it should be in bold letters or something in your Bible. It starts again. 
from from the the the, the practical. Now it's starting to hit really hit home to our life. Come now, you say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. You know, there's some people that live their life, and I'm not saying that they do it derogatory, but they live their life even as a Christian as if God doesn't exist. Or in other words, they don't obviously say, well, God doesn't exist, I'm an atheist. But they live their life as if God doesn't have the right to every part of it. They plan their life. They want to, they want to do the things that they want to do, regardless of what God wants to do. They forget that when the disciples ask Jesus and teach him how to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it will be done. That prayer that was originally uh, prayed in part by David, you can read that in First Chronicles, it will be fulfilled. Thy will will be done. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, first of all, we've gone through this before, and we briefly go through this. We all know the Lord's Prayer, but our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. Right there, that word means that he is set apart. Okay? He is absolutely different than anything this world can afford. He is apart from his creation, yet totally involved in it. Hallowed is thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we go out forgive. Now that's legal ground. We forgive now because we've been forgiven of, by Christ. If we have been forgiven by Christ... We have no reason to hold grudges. We have no reason to hold unforgiveness. We have no reason to hold animosity because Christ has freely forgiven us and so on. So verse 13, look at this again. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. But you don't know, verse 14, what will happen tomorrow. You have no idea. God does. You know, and I know, I I know that there is a hard concept sometimes for people to understand this. I got to be honest to you. When I first heard this and it was taught to me, it stung. Because all my life I was raised to fend for myself, to get my ducks in a row. And this is going against the fiber of, of what I've been raised to do. See? But that's what being a Christian is. It's a new creation in Christ. That's why to, to be a religious person, to have some kind of reformation, to be, uh, what do they call it in the prison? They, they want to now, they want to uh, reform uh, Yes, thank you. We're not rehabilitated. We're not reformed. We're not patched up. We are created new beings. And that takes growth. And that takes understanding of the Word of God. And that takes the Word of God. That takes God putting you on His anvil of His Word and shaping you into the form and image of Christ. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I think that, that James must have been thinking of Proverbs 27.1, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You know? That is solid instruction. You know, I, I uh, wow, I have so much that I want to say, but let me just let me just condense uh, this this study here. I want you real quickly to look at Psalm ninety, if if you will. Keep your finger there. Go to Psalm one, Psalm ninety. And again, no pressure. If if, if not, just listen. Psalm ninety. God has, spot, has spoken to us so many places in His Word about the gravity of life. 
and what, why, there, why it is so brief. You know, we see in the, the, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden. As soon as they partook of that fruit, they died spiritually. But yet something else happened. They started dying physically. They died. All through the scripture, we see how life is, is at best a shadow. Psalm 90 starts out, the prayer of Moses, by the way, starting out in verse 2 by saying that, you know, before the mountains were brought forth or anything was even formed, even the world from everlasting to everlasting, you're God, there's something different here. There's an everlasting God that's apart from his creation that dwells in eternity. We are time, okay? And, and by that very understanding, we have a certain time to, to commit ourselves to follow and to realize the joyous, the rapturous joyous, if you will, of knowing this one who exists outside of time. It's a mouthful. But that's the best I can do. He says in verse 4, A thousand years in your sight like yesterday when it's passed, like watching the night. Now, again, we're talking about the metaphoric language that's conveying a concept. Again, a metaphoric language that's conveying a concept. A thousand years is nothing before God. I don't understand how in the song Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, we have no less days to sing His praise. I don't understand that concept. But see, God is everlasting. I am finite. So we need to understand here that we, we have a limited time. And God has invested us the privilege of being ambassadors and knowing Him and giving off the fragrance of Christ in this limited time that we have. He goes on to say, it's like watching the night. Look at verse 5. You carry them away like a flood. They're like a sleep. We've all slept a good eight hours sleep. It seems like we've been asleep five minutes. Again, this is a time thing. And look at uh, the rest of verse 5. In the morning they are like grass which it grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it's cut down and it withers. So let me go to verse 9. All of our days have passed away. In your wrath, we finished our years like a sigh or like a tale that is told. If you use the King James, look at verse 10 though. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow for sin, and it is cut off, and we fly away. It's over. <clears throat> It's hard to understand that when you're young, when everything's going right. But like I've said before earlier, earlier this morning, you know, you talk to somebody that, that is, it doesn't have to be Christian or not, but that's older. They'll tell you one thing. I've heard that all my life. Oh, it goes so quick. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that. But they look at it from the gravity of life, which is right there in front of them. We look at it from eternal perspective. <laughs> Our life is short and brief from internal perspective. We are going to a place that has always been, that always will be. The only thing new in it, per se, would be the mansion or the Father's house that Christ is bringing us to. But eternity in Him, our Lord, our Savior, our God and Father, have been from eternity past and will be from eternity future. Being born again is that we're wonderful recipients of that eternal life. He goes on to say in verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number those days. You remember the story, uh, and I refer to it so often because, you know what, folks, I was that man. In Luke 12. He said, hey man, life is going on pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And now, since I'm doing good, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot, and I'm going to start investing. I did this. This is my story. 
20 years old, man, I'm already thinking about my different avenues of retirement, right? Like, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm making money. I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. You fool. This night, your soul is required of you. What are you going to do with all your hopes and your dreams? They vanished. You know? That's what we can learn about that story in Luke chapter 12. It's the, it, it's, life is not to be looked at as what can I do for the future. Life is looked at as that it is brief and Christ wants to do something in and through me. The king is coming. I'm here on borrowed time. It's like if I sent my son on an errand and he only had two hours to do it. How is he going to conduct that errand? Is he going to go, oh, you know, I think I'm going to go by my buddies and kind of check it. After all, i got two hours. I'm going to, you know, have, but, oh, man, i got ten minutes left. I better go. And halfway there, he gets a flat tire and he's really going to jam. That's how a lot of people live their Christian life. Folks, listen to some of these things in Scripture. And we'll wrap this up here in a little bit. First Chronicles, chapter 29. If you have not read the Chronicles lately, they're a, a consummation, if you will, of, of the kings and more. They're like a, a going into a, a recording office and seeing a detailed account of things that are pertinent in spirituality. The Chronicles are marvelous. Listen to this. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners. So we are so we're all our fathers. <laughs> Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. This is not a New Testament concept by any means. Listen to what Job says in Job chapter six, or excuse me, chapter seven, verse six. I love this. Wow, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, whatever that is, and are spent without hope. That's Job. Listen to Job chapter 9. Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. Psalm 39. Behold, thou hast made my days, David said this, as a hand breath. Remember I asked Leon to demonstrate that. A hand breath. My age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man is best state is altogether vanity. Listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 38. My age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with a with pining sickness, and from the day even to the night, thou will make an end of me. Or James chapter four fourteen. Again, you don't know what your life's going to be like. You don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. What is your life? It's like a vapor that vanishes away. This, this, these are a few out of many. This is all through the scripture. God is God because of sin. We have a short, limited time here. And what are we doing with it? I want to end today by saying, what are you doing with your life? What are we doing with it? And I don't mean what are we doing as far as running to and fro. I mean, there comes a time in everybody's life when they must stop and say, is Jesus really the Lord of my life? Yes, he saved me. Yes, I'm saved. And some of you are going to, to say, I know that if I die right now, I'd be in the presence of the Lord. There is no soul sleep. Don't listen to your Seventh-day Adventist friends that try to tell you that, uh, you know, they want to argue a point of when to worship, and they want to tell you that there's a, you know, other religions and everything that say we soul sleep. And uh, you know what? No, let's let's get beyond this. We all know the Bible. We've all been studying it for a while. We've all know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We all know that Jesus Christ came for one reason: not to be a good teacher, not to be a reformer. He came to die for sinners. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to hang on a cross so that God the Father would strike him instead of us. So that God might become our God and that his Father might become our Father. That was the reason Christ came, to save sinners. So we all know the basics, understanding of the wonderful grace of God. What are we doing with it? What are you doing with your life? Are you still meddling around with sin? Is your thought life still meddled with garbage? Or are we resting in Him? 
Are we abiding in him? When you read 1 John, do you get, do you get stabbed a little bit sometimes? Realizing that, that maybe there's some bitterness in there, or maybe you, know, you find fault with your brother, or, or maybe you, you don't like your brother who you can see, and yet you claim to love God whom you can't see. Or else you read that about the love of God and that, oh, I love God and yet I have my own spurless sins and whatever. Or, or do you know that because you're abiding in Him and you're faithful in Him, you know that when He comes back, you won't be ashamed of His coming. Would you be ashamed if Jesus Christ came back right now? Would your heart ache in knowing in that split second that you wish you had more time to repent? That you wish you had more time to, to confess, to leave sins that you know you should have left off. If that's your plight and only you know within your heart, then you need to stop and repent and submit yourself to God. You need to commit your life to Him because life is very, very short. If you can't do it today, nine times out of ten, you will not be able to do it tomorrow. That's the devil's lie. If you can't commit right now, wholeheartedly, you will not be able to do it tomorrow. That's the devil's lie. Well, just think about it. Work it out in your life and realize, you know, kind of put God on, on a pro or a con list. What? That's what people are doing today. They're putting God on a pro and a con list. What's going to be better for me? That's what all these teachers, these, these hucksters and these shysters these teachers that go out and they proclaim, I don't want a cross now. I don't want to be, I don't want to follow Christ in humiliation. I want the streets of gold now. I don't want to suffer for my Lord. I don't want to be like the Apostle Paul that says, I want to know Philippians 3.10. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed unto his death. Not that I've already obtained it, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching toward those things that are before. Is that our plight? He's coming back. He's right at the door, James says. Are we heeding that? Do we love his appearing? We only have a very short time here. A very short time. He says, instead you ought to say, verse 15, if the Lord wills. Because anything other than that is called boasting and arrogance, and it's evil. Therefore, verse 17, to him who does not knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Wow. You know, the time here we were discussing earlier, yesterday I think it was, we're here to snatch people from the fire. We're here on a very expedient mission. We're not here to, well, I think, you know, I'll just... Our mindset is that no matter who we come in contact with, you will be an example or not an example. You will leave some kind of impression. What impression are we leaving this day, today? Not yesterday. We can't do anything about yesterday. We can't do anything about 20 years ago. We can't do anything about the whole up, horrible upbringing we had. The beatings our parents used to give us, if, if that's your case. The alcoholism or, or the bad things. Or yet, you know, I st like me, I can't do anything about the good leave it to beaver uh, upbringing I had. Because I couldn't get it to my kids. I live in a different world. We can't worry about yesterday. All we can focus on is today. Because there might not be tomorrow. We might not get another opportunity like we have today. It's like a vapor. It's here today, and it vanishes away. You know, there's a, uh, a gentleman by the name of T.A. Tasker that writes this. He says, The nearest parallel to this description of human life as vapor is to be found in, in, in wisdom. Where the godless recognize 
that their life shall pass away as a trace of a cloud. And it shall be dispersed as a mist that is driven away with the beams of the sun. We need to utter, we need to realize our utter dependence upon God. Listen to this description again. He's, he's, he put in another description of, of the, the vapor. Again, he says, the nearest parallel to this description, and by the way, this gentleman's name is R.V.G. Tasker. I don't know uh, when he lived. He lived quite some time ago. I don't know. But he says, again, this is the nearest parallel that he has found that, that soothes his heart, where the godless recognize that their life shall pass away as a trace of a cloud. View the, the sky as eternity and the clouds as your life. Is what he's saying here. They shall be dispersed as a mist that is driven away with the beams of the sun. I used to go duck hunting with my dad when I was a young kid and we'd go out on these these, these dikes it would be because of there was it was in the salt sea and there was a lot of mist that would come early morning. You know the water was warmer than the actual air and the mist would come up. When the sun came up, I remember very vividly sitting in the dikes and, and the mist would be going across the water and we'd start start seeing these little decoys out there. That's where our life is. Our mist is going away. I thought that was interesting. What are we doing with it? Remember, God is outside of time. And that's where our standing is. That is where our hope is. Our eternal standing is not in time. It's out of time. It's in eternity. And we are here for a purpose and a reason. And folks, it is not you and it is not me. We are not our focus. We are not our reason. We are not our purpose. He is the one who dwells in eternity. So that makes the gravity of life all that much more pinpointed according to the Bible. And because of reason of time, I gotta stop. But think on these things. Cam, do you want to pray, please? Thank you, Father, for what James teaches us in your word. Life is brief. And as we get older, it becomes briefer. We thank you that you've given us everything we need in order to live a life pleasing to you, a life of godliness. And we pray, as James in chapter 4, that uh, when we know to do right, uh, we will do those things that are right in order to please you. We thank you for our salvation uh, and the Christian life that, that we have. Amen. Amen. He says, not only let us come and cut them off from being a nation, he tells you right there that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Remember Israel was Jacob, remember? Wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And he wouldn't quit. And his socket was, was out of place. And he says, I'm not going to let go until you give me a blessing. We could go all the way back to the prophetic strain, how God is so true to his people. But listen to this. So that the name of Israel be no more. We're going to wipe them out. By the way, that is what Iran's uh, alternative, or I should say, uh, their angle is now. Okay? They're blatant about it. God's angry. They're blatant about getting rid of God's people and so are other people. God is angry. But look at this. So he says, after cutting off the nation of Israel to remember no more, look at verse 5. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gabal, Ammon, Elimelech, Philistine, the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, has also joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot. We know that the children of Lot, we know where Moab came from, right? So, 
The interesting thing about this is we have a dictator over there that wants to get rid of God's people using the same thing. He says, we want to cut off their name. We want to drive them into the Mediterranean so Israel is no more. God is angry. And Edom is in there. Was Edom destroyed? Yes. Wow. Wow. I got a few more minutes. Back in Obadiah. So in verse 10, the violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off. What? Forever. God is serious. In that day, or excuse me, in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Even you were as one of them. They stood by. You know, God uh, says an amazing thing. You know, and he used it, he, he did it, he exemplified it through, like, you know, David, for example. David writes this in Psalm 35, and this is what pleases the Lord, and anything that apart from this, God is very angry at this attitude. David writes, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me for evil, for good, to my sorrow, my soul. But as for me, these people rose up and they were wicked. They wanted his demise. But David said, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though they were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one as in one's first mother. I was like this in the day of their adversity. That's the attitude that God has. So when we see that, when he's saying this about Edom, Edom stood by and, and would not allow the wilderness wanderings the Israelites to go through. They would not provide for them. And also we see as later on as the years roll on, I, I think probably Syrian captivity, maybe, and, and some other things, but we know that they watched the demise of Jerusalem several times and they stood off. They didn't give a hand. In fact, they even applauded. It goes ill with the nations that, that turn a deaf ear to Israel. And we see it through so much of the prophetic word. Wow. Verse 12, but you should not have gazed again on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Verse 13, indeed, you should have gazed on their affliction, should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among those who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Now, it's interesting, after this pronouncement, that verse 15, by the way, which is the starting of another prophetic strain, a strain of the day of the Lord. By the way, Obadiah is the first of the writing prophets to introduce this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. It is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Verse 16, as you drink on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. God told Jeremiah, I believe it's in Jeremiah chapter 24, 25, I'm going to give you a cup, and I want you to make all the nations you go to that I send you drink it, and they will drink it. It's the cup of judgment. It's the cup of warning. It's the cup of, of the Amorites, if you, if you, and the Amalekites, and all those in the Old Testament, you see that God always resorts to the fact that their cup is getting fuller and fuller and fuller. 
And when it comes to that brim and it overflows, there's nothing left for a God of justice and righteousness to do but enact judgment. The day of the Lord. Now we go from Edom being wiped out, from Edom being those who dwelt securely, of uh, being against their brethren, of rejoicing their calamity, of going up even into the church age, so to speak, of, of descendants or something. You know, they say that Herod was an Edomite. Herod, Herod was a kind of a descendant. Uh, yeah, we know his demise and so forth. But, we, you know, these have perished off the land. All of a sudden, God switches over to the day of the Lord. It's upon all nations. It's near. As you have done, so it be, shall be done to you. Look at verse 17. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. (laughs) You cannot get away from the last days. God is going to deliver Israel. Is God done with his people, Israel? No. No. And again, I say no. Wow. Deliverance. Look at the middle of verse 17. And there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possession. This is, this is a key part of this thousand year reign. This is a key part of the fulfillment when Christ sits on, his, on the throne of his father David. And by the way, that's that, in that strain that God said to David, he said, I will not leave a lamp unlit. Because I have sworn to David the sure mercies of David. Even though we went to Solomon, we saw the demise there. Solomon, his son, Roboam, the kingdom was split. But God always had his prophetic strain. He promised to David, one will be on your throne. We see that in Acts chapter 2. Very, very pointed about where we're going What's going to happen? By the way, let me preface this, and I'll, and I'll end uh, real soon. <laughs> this is exciting. If you want to know where you're going to be when Jesus Christ comes back to deal with his people Israel and the nations and to set up his glorious kingdom, if you want to find out where you'll be, go to Revelation 19, verses 11 and on. You will be with him, coming back with him. The armies of heaven coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ and, and witnessing this phenomenon that we're studying here, that we see that uh, it can't be broken. The Word of God cannot be broken. Can you imagine that? What a glorious future we have. That just is amazing to me. He says again, verse 17, But on the Mount of Zion there shall be deliverance, there shall be holiness, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Look at verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble, and they shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain at the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And as we said before, all traces of the Edomites, as far as we can tell, disappeared by about 70 A.D., by about the time of the desecration of the temple and thereabout. But nonetheless, this is what God said would happen. Wait till we get to Nahum and read about the downfall of Nineveh, one of the most bloodiest, cruel civilizations ever. Is it too bloody and cruel for God? It's nothing for God. It's stubble for God. This world has not... Again, this world's going out of control for those that don't know God. For us that know God, it's perfectly going exactly the way God had intended. He's in control of everything. That should bring so much comfort. Look at verse 19. The south shall possess the mountains of Edom. The south. I love that. The naked in some translations. It's the south. It's much like an area, if you look again, like we said last week, the map of the United States, how Texas kind of goes down. It's the south end. The Negev was an area that of great importance for Kadesh Barnea, for example. And the spies went up to Kadesh Barnea and looked at, out at the land and they came back and so on and so forth. But what I think is the south, again, verse 19, shall possess the mountains of Esau and the lowland shall possess 
Philistia. That's right now. You know where that land Philistia, uh, the uh, uh, Gaza Strip? And that area in there. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim, the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Galilee. This is absolute victory. And this is going back. We can take these promises all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15, 17, and so forth. They're going to possess that land that God had promised to Abraham. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel, verse 20, shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of the south. Verse 21, Then saviors, or deliverers, shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And I love the way that Obadiah ends his prediction or his prophecy. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Just as God in all of, of history, all of time, from the time that you were in him before the foundation of the world tell, tell all eternity where God is, we are going to be. Where God is, his people is going to be. They're the apple of his eye. And that's going to be the wonderment of the earth. Can you imagine? These scriptures will be around. Can you imagine at, at, at the, the millennium kingdom and everything that's gone on, people pick up God's word and read the prophets and read, read what the prophets say, and they're going, Lord God, you did exactly what you, were, what you said you were going to do. You're so faithful. God, forgive me for the time I've wasted. And not looking at the word of God, and it is true. Every single word of it is true. We don't have time for the false teachers. We don't have time for the false prophets. We have time only for those that are going to take God's word as what it is. Truth Every single word of it is truth. I'll end with what I've written in my Bible, and I believe this. Though it does not seem like it now, my God will reign over all the earth. Cam, do you want to pray for us? Thank you, Father, heaven, for preserving these writings miraculously by prophets. We look back, we see that what they have spoken was fulfilled and is being fulfilled, and in the future will be fulfilled mm. because of your faithfulness to your, to your children. We thank you for the freedom to study your word and the truth of it.